welcome back to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of the Swingerillion Pop Mag Smash Hits, usually from the 80s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that, and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. Now, we've been away for a little while while the carousel has undergone essential repairs and maintenance. Every moving part has been cleaned and lubricated, and a fresh coat of paint has been carefully and lovingly applied. So all we need to do now is hop on board for a top pop ride. I'm Simon Galloway, and scream if you want to go faster, it's Gavin Hogg. Hey, fellow Si. I've just uh, just put down my can of WD-40 and I'm ready to rock. Yeah, well, you know, it's, these are the, uh, the, the tools of the trade. Absolutely, my friend, absolutely. <laughs> um, so before we introduce our guest and uh, get stuck into uh, the edition of Smash It's that we're going to be looking at in this episode, a little bit of housekeeping, because we've got a few thank yous to say to folks who've bought us a coffee. Indeed, uh, the following people have very kindly, very generously supplied us with a little caffeine fix while we've been working on the carousel. Cell. So step forward, take a bow or a curtsy, the following people. We've got Steve Fenton, Ricardo Waterbarn, Joe DB, Rachel Gallatly, and Phonic Underground bought us a coffee just four days ago. So thank you, Phonic. Thanks to all of you. Greatly appreciated. And if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple and it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to coffee.com slash giddypoppod. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com. Giddypop up slash giddypoppod. Can't forget the slash. And uh, chuck us a few quid to help us keep the carousel spinning. Uh, Right, let's get down to business and welcome our guest onto the carousel. Hopping on for the ride of a lifetime. It's TV production designer, pop culture sponge, and pop music enthusiast Richard True. Welcome aboard. Uh, How are you? Right. Very good. It's uh, very nice of you to join us. Yeah, I was. um, I think that uh, carousel needs a redesign, actually. So I'm I'm the right person to do that. (laughs) Should should have got you on board sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. mentioned there that you're a tv production designer i've been uh, doing some uh, light internet stalking and just lo- looking at some of the things that, that you've worked on so uh, i mean many many things over a, a quite a lengthy career now i think yeah. but um highlights that i've picked out i mean recently afterlife this time with alan partridge intelligence and i know one of gav's favorites staff let's flats but also going back to the, uh, the the golden, the halcyon days of uh, Grange Hill and Top of the Pops. Ah, yes, yeah. But for the uninitiated, what what does a production designer do? Well, it kind of um, it encompasses everything and anything that you see on screen. So, in something like Afterlife, Tony's house, that's obviously that's a set. So all the furniture has been chosen by me and you know, a set decorator and the size of the room is determined by me and the colours and the floor and the curtains, every visual aspect of what you see on screen, a a production designer has had some responsibility for. And I think, yeah, that's essentially it. And then obviously on location, it's sort of choosing locations and deciding which way you want to shoot, covering up, you know, graphics on buildings, changing the names of buildings if you need to, involved in action vehicles, involved in the stunts, involved in guns, involved in anything and everything that's connected with the visual side of of, of the show as it goes out. And you know, it's good pop kid credentials there that you've uh, worked on top of the pops. Uh, when, when about was that? 
I did a well. I did two. So I did. It was the year I did Grange Hill. So it's who was on it. It was uh, Chesney Hawks. James were on it doing Sit Down. Erasure were on it. OMD were on it. Um, oh, a two unlimited because BBC had moved it up to Elstree Studios, um, and I was doing my year on Grange Hill, um, a full term as as it as you were, <laughs> and. Um, then uh, we used to sort of bunk off during lunchtime and go and watch bands rehearse Top of the Pops because they, you know, so I saw all kinds of bands and I ended up on stage with Paul McCartney at one point during a lunch hour, as you do. Um, and then, yeah, at the end of the year, we, I did the last, yeah, it was the last one of the year and then the Christmas the Christmas special. How old were you when you were doing that? Because if you don't mind me saying, Richard, you know, you look, you look like a fairly young chap. I can't believe you're doing that God at the bless. age of seven. Yeah, God bless you. Well, I'm fifty. I'll be fifty-four in a couple of weeks. So oh, okay. I was, I was sort of twenty-one when I started in eighty-eight. So twenty-nine, twenty-one, early twenty, mid, yeah, mid twenties, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I mean that still seems fairly young to be doing because you. I guess you're working. If you're on a big show like Top of the Pops, you're working with people that have been in the business a long time and are well established and you know, we'll have certain views on the way to do things properly and not. So yeah. it's kind of a bit of a baptism of fire, I guess, at that age. Well, it is. And I was only an art director at that point. So I wasn't sort of, you know, what we used to do is each, uh, a band would come on and sometimes a band requirement would be little more than just putting some black drape around a, yeah. you know, a set of decks or whatever it is. Bit of dry ice. Just give us bit a bit of, yeah, of dry ice. Yeah, more dry ice. <laughs> um, I remember sticking icicles on the top of the Pops logo for the Christmas show. But then, you know, some bands would require you know, a, a piece of staging that was particular to them and you'd get involved in organising that. Um, James had been on, I did Going Live, and it was the, it was all that sort of James, all the Manchester things. So we had Soho, James, we had EMF come on, um, and I was doing stuff for all of those bands. So EMF, we cut out, made some big polystyrene letters for the back of the set. And then James, we did a logo that was a sort of a two-dimensional cutout thing that they ended up taking back up to Manchester for them to go in their offices and gave me a couple of free T-shirts, which I, which I was very <laughs> grateful for at the time. And as you said, being a pop kid, it was kind of, you know, it was brilliant. I remember spending 10 minutes chatting to Andy McCluskey uh, about... Because Sailing on the Seven Seas, that was the song they were doing, and... I remember talking to him about them supporting Simple Minds because I'd seen that in the summer. And I basically told him how shit Simple Minds were and how brilliant <laughs> how brilliant they were. Um, and then Erasure, I was a big Erasure fan and they signed a couple of singles for me and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was good times, good times. You were living the dream, weren't you? I was living the pop <laughs> dream. And I've continued to do it because you guys, I think you guys know I did the Jonathan Ross show for a number of years on the BBC and um, as designer. And, I mean, honestly, the great and the good came on to that show and uh, just being up close with, you know, people like Stevie Wonder and Barbara Streisand and Grace Jones and Duran and Spandau and Bowie, uh, you know, and just to be, you know, literally breathing the same air is, yeah, there's 95% of you trying to be professional and 5% is just like a little kid, you know, just can't believe you bloody luck. 
So, um, Richard, you picked out the uh, edition of Smash Hits that we're going to be looking at. It's February the 17th to March the 2nd, 1983. There's a, a flag-waving OMD gracing the cover. Oh, they've already had a little mention already. And uh, if you, dear listener, want to read along with us, you can do just that thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered websites. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes for this episode, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and uh, we'll post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So before we clamber aboard the carousel, let's set the scene. Richard, let's, let's go back to February 1983. Uh, what were you up to? How, how old were you? What, what were you doing? Well, I was. It's just this uh, issue ends the day before my sixteenth birthday, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. So, uh, I was fifteen. I was in my last. I was in the old, what what I what I call fifth year. I, I've got two teenage sons, and I can't work out whether it's year ten or nine. I've never been able to work that out. So, it's year eleven, I think. But yeah. I'm in the yeah the last the last fifth year of school, um, and then I finished doing because I was a bit of an am I, I was sort of an amateur actor and I, that's one of the reasons why I kind of ended up doing what I do for a living um so we just finished doing uh Blythe Spirit the Christmas before uh where I played Dr Bradman um and I wowed the audiences of Rainham in Essex with my performance um <laughs> yeah so the beginning of 83, I guess it was leading up to my exams. They were my, that was my O-levels and CSEs and sort of just sort of knuckling down, but also um, rehearsing for another play that I was doing in the summer. So I was sort of, you know, juggling, rehearsing for O-level government and politics and doing Oh What a Lovely War on stage at the local theatre. So, yeah, it was a bit of a... Winning combination. That's... Winning combination. <laughs> I have found my old school report, actually, which oh. obviously for the purposes of the podcast, nobody can see this, but basically I was uh, an easily distracted kid, if you go through it. I mean, pretty much to a to a man and woman, everybody says the same. Particular attention to my uh, technical drawing teacher, who basically said I was no good to sit the O-level and I should only sit the CSE. Um and ironic, given what I do for a living, that like I spend quite a lot of time at a drawing board. So, <laughs> damn you, Mr. Taylor. Um, so, yeah, that's what I was up to. And obviously, um, when I was doing drama classes at the Guildhall in um, in the Barbican, so I used to go up there on a Saturday morning uh, on my own on the train, which, you know, maybe isn't such a novel thing, but it felt like, you know, quite an adventure for a sort of... Well, I started going up there when I was 14, into that there London on my own on the Tube, and... Uh, and doing these drama classes on a Saturday morning and then stopping off uh, at uh, Virgin Megastore in Tottenham Court Road on the way home and all that sort of stuff. So my, you know, my rude awakening of um, of going into London and going to the Megastore. I do remember going down into the basement. They had a cafe and it was all kind of um, pine, um, very unrock and roll pine. It, and... Um, it was. It, it looked like a spudgy like, you know. It had a sort of vibe of, as a reference for the kids. Um, and um, they had a um, they had a big painting. I remember going in. There was a massive uh, painting of the Penthouse and Pavement album sleeve that they obviously changed whenever there was a new Virgin because they were a Virgin band, I think, Heaven Seventeen. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was me really, um, and sort of breakfast TV and 
the young ones and all of that, you know. Yeah, so what sort of stuff were you buying? What sort of stuff were you listening to? I knew you were going to ask me that, which is why I've written it down. So I've, um, I've, uh, well, I was really into kind of Thomas Dolby, Human League, Japan, Ultravox, Associates, a band called Fashion, they were from Birmingham, John Fox, Fiat Lux, uh, Depeche Mode, they were kind of local kind of Essex heroes, really. Um, Culture Club. I mean, oddly, that Culture Club performance, September of the previous year, I'm just, I know everybody says about that and nobody knew whether he was a boy or a girl. And I remember specifically being in art and having that very conversation with people about, you know, who was he? What what did we just see on top of the pops last night? Um who else was I? Oh, New Order, I was just beginning to discover. I'd sort of heard Temptation and just thought, what the hell is this? This is amazing. And Soft Cell I was into. And um, what else did I write down? Oh, and hearing Pornography by The Cure for the first time. I remember hearing that at that age and just thinking, wow, this is this is amazing. So, yeah, mainly synth-based, I think it's fair to say. I think um, other stuff had... You know, I knew about, you know, ABBA and a bit of disco and all the rest of it and ELO, um, you know, as a kid. But, yeah, by by this point, I am hook, line and sinker in love with uh, all things electronic. And uh, Gav, what about you? What, what, what were you up to in uh, February 83? I guess, really, I was kind of between bands in terms of pop music stuff because Adam and the Ants had... Uh gone their separate ways uh we'll come across american tibbs uh, later on in here and I, I was a big adam and the ants fan so uh, i was kind of upset about that and not particularly enamored with uh, adam's solo direction and uh, it was really just before the smiths hit so i think i was a, a pop kid of no fixed abode at that time the um the tunes from this issue that i I got. I did go out and buy Boxer Beat by the Joe Boxers, which I still love to this day. And uh, and the album that I went and bought around this time was um, Battle Hymns for Children Singing by Hazy Fantasy. Um... So that gives you an idea of a kid who doesn't really know quite where he's at, but <laughs> loving the pop sounds that are all around. And not that long before this issue came out, I'd actually gone and bought the first ever albums because up until then I'd always just bought singles and I'd started buying singles from about the age of seven. Uh, seven or eight but um, February 83 will see me just before my 13th birthday and in December of 82 uh, I went out and on the same day I bought uh, the Jams Dig the New Breed the live album that kind of came out um, just after they'd split up or kind of as they were splitting up and the John Lennon collection because obviously it'd been a couple of years since John Lennon had died and um, I'd not known who the Beatles were when he died you know I'd not uh, I'd not been kind of brought up into that. But then I'd bought some cheap Beatles cassettes not long afterwards because they were on the news a lot, weren't they? And and then I started finding out about John Lennon and Paul McCartney, so I bought the John Lennon collection. So, yeah, I was just starting to slowly discover albums. And then, obviously, it was not long after this when the Smiths kind of uh, grabbed me from the, uh, the first time I saw them on Top of the Pops uh, and I started buying their albums and then, you know, getting other things, you know, more kind of, I suppose, more kind of inky bands rather than Smash It's bands, because I always saw Smash It's as more of a, a magazine for the singles and, and the weeklies were more about the albums for me. In terms of other stuff that I was doing, I, do you know what? It's, I can't even... It's really hard to, to think, you know, exactly what I was up to. I mean, I know you were talking, Richard, about looking at school reports, and I think mine said very similar things. I was a bit of a dreamer and sort of academically did okay, but could have it, there was always like could do much better 
if he yeah. if he concentrates on what he does, you know. I was just I never really had that ethic. <laughs> you know, I, just, <laughs> I wasn't a naughty kid, but I you know, I just couldn't really be asked with trying too hard, so yeah, that's about all I can remember. <laughs> what about you, Sai? What was what was going on in Galloway Land in uh, in eighty three? Well, I remember this period. Uh, in fact, the, the exact period that this um, edition of Smash Hits came out, I remember very well. I was nine and nine and a half, and uh, at the end of this week, um, so it was just before half term school holidays. It was my last week in the school that I'd been going to since, well, since like uh, um, nursery reception. Uh, so for you know almost six years, and we moved house from uh, one side of Sheffield to the other. So this period, for, for me, it, it's all it's all about newness and new things. And we moved from, from like an old Victorian house to a house that was just a couple of years old. And it was like, like being in the countryside because it hadn't really, you know, there weren't that many other houses around there and started at a new school just after half term. I remember the first day being taken there by my mom and, you know, they must have looked round or something. I don't, you know, I, I don't know how they arranged or sorted all that out. I didn't know where I was going or anything. Just, just, dropped off at school one morning, <laughs> you know, taken to the classroom by, by one of the teachers, sat down at this table and um, opposite a, a, another kid. Uh, and, and we were introduced to each other. Uh, and the, the other kid was called Leah. And I'd, you know, I'd never heard of the name Leah before. So I'm, I'm looking at Leah thinking, is, is this a boy or is this a girl? I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure here. And, and this, this, this kid's looking back at me. And then says, "Are you a boy or a girl?" And I'm, like, I'm a boy. What are you? <laughs> so we're both thinking exactly the same uh, about each other. <laughs> um, in terms of music, I was just like a, a, a little pop sponge, I guess. Radio on all the time. My mom always had the, the local commercial radio station on. Always listened to the top forty on a Sunday, and this was uh, a period where I would tape uh, a lot of things off the radio as well on, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, my dad's uh, Dixon's ghetto blaster and a, and a, a cassette rammed in there and just recording the songs that, that I wanted. Um, and this, this was probably like the first year that I was uh, buying more records that, that were in the charts. And also opposite the new school was a news agent where I could go and I'd go and have a look at the smash. It's in there, but I wouldn't buy it. I was a, I was a lapsed reader at this point. My sister used to have it and then she stops having it. Uh, and I didn't start getting it on, you know, having it saved for me every fortnight until the following year. So I just kind of like have a little look through, but always, you know, buy a couple of singles off the uh, X jukebox rack that was in there. I don't remember buying anything, at this time, but I certainly had a few of the records that were in, in this issue on X Jukebox. Um, Ice House, Hey Little Girl, definitely had that. But then not long after that, Duran Duran came along with um, Is There Something I Should Know? Nick Hayward's first solo single. Um, just before this, I think at the end of 82, um, Malcolm McLaren, um, Buffalo Gals came out, which was absolutely blew my mind. That, that was one that I got my mom to get me on a Friday trip to town to go, go to the fish market. I said, well, buy me this while you're down there. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I remember as well at, at my old school just before we left, and I think they may have done this just because I was leaving, we were doing country dancing. Uh, and square dancing. 
Music and movement, we called it at school. Music and movement, yeah. That's and if you know it. if you know the B side of Buffalo Cows by Malcolm McLaren, it's the hoedown uh, square dance version of Buffalo uh... Cows. And I took this in and we played it on the on the um, little record player that we had in the uh, in the hall for when we were doing PE, and we all did a, a do, dosey dose and all that sort of thing to to Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren. Excellent. <laughs> it's funny you saying about your go, getting your mum to go in to buy your record because I um you clearly don't know my dad, but I got my dad to go in and buy the Culture Club Kissing to Be Clever <laughs> album from Downtown Records in Romford. And I, I I think he was he was visibly stunned when he got back, shaking like a leaf. Because Downtown Records was an amazing record shop. Anybody who grew up in Essex, um, uh, Romford and around that area will know it very well and uh, of a certain age. But they kind of had a... Um, every person in there was almost like central casting. There was a goth behind the counter there was a punk there was a skinhead there was a hippie um and it was just the most amazing record shop i I, if i could travel back in time that's where i'd go i just it was just one of those places that i will never ever forget as long as i live but yeah um sending my dad in to buy the culture club album um was yeah definitely a highlight but that felt like that felt like a real luxury to come home and there'd be a new record on the bed for you know what i mean it just felt you know, it was like kind of like the ultimate in mail order, I guess. Yeah, it's like, here's that record you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Still in the carrier bag. Yeah, it was brilliant, brilliant. And uh, where does Smash It's fit into all this for you, Rich? Well, this is the first issue I bought, and that's why I chose it. And and I kind of, and oddly, I don't know whether at 15 I'm too late for buying it, actually. I sort of wondered whether I might be. But I looked at the previous issue, and of course it's Kajagoogle on the cover, so I may have considered buying it and then thought, no, I'm definitely not buying anything with Kajagoogle. And then the OMD cover definitely drew me in, I would I would say, because I'd, I'd bought uh, Architectural Morality, um, which is one of the greatest albums of, of all time and, you know, definitely a top five of the 1980s. You know, it's just a stunning, stunning piece of work. And so I was, I was, they were on my radar. And so I think probably seeing this cover, that was, that was enough for me because it looked quite cool. And I, I, I looked it up, I'm sure you guys have, it's a Sheila Rock photograph on the cover. So, um, you know, it's quite a cool image. And uh, yeah, that's what, that's what reeled me into uh, the first one I bought. So, Gav, do you want to take us through that front cover, and also we'll have a, a delve into the uh, delve into the contents page as well while we're at it. So, yeah, talking about the cover. So then we've got OMD as a four piece, not a two piece, uh, in very nicely pressed shirts and ties, and I mean immaculately polished shoes. You've got to say you can see your reflection in them, can't you? They're amazing. <laughs> very respectable. Very respectable young lads. Um, they seem to be standing in a giant wet room, and we think we've uh, <laughs> identified the correct location where the wet room is. More of that later, uh, fact finders. <laughs> but uh, I think I know exactly where they are. Uh, standing with flags, which they use um, in the interview inside to do some semaphore along the side of the page. It's a Japanese flag on the right. I don't know what the one on... Do you know what the one on the left was? The blue with the... looks like a white circle, maybe. I know. Well, are they... Um... Aren't they naval? Because it's battleships, so they're they're um, pennants to spell out letters, aren't they? So each flag, I think each flag is a each flag is a different letter. I think. 
Yeah, well, I tried to work out what the semaphore was later on. We'll, we'll get to that when we do the, uh, the interview, <laughs> yeah. but I think I've uncovered some special code. Uh, also on the front, we've got a little uh, tease about an article that's in the magazine about personal hi-fi and stereos, and they tempt us in with lyrics on the front cover by Icehouse and Rocker's Revenge. I can't help thinking that they've put the bar a bit low there. They could have aimed a bit higher with... <laughs> Trying to draw the pop kids in. I'm not sure. I mean, I know, Sai, you like that Ice House single, but... Uh, Very much so, but re- reasons we'll get to later. Well, yeah, I, I know what those reasons are without you even having a conversation <laughs> with you. Um, also advertised on the front, a China Crisis, Spandau Ballet and Thompson Twins, who at that time were uh, very much uh, a new band. Over onto the, the first page inside, we've got Musical Youth. We're never going to give you up the lyrics to that on a full page. And then we come to the all-important song lyrics. So in this issue, apart from Musical Youth, we've also got Genetic Engineering by OMD, Love on Your Side, Thompson Twins, the aforementioned Rocker's Revenge, The Harder They Come, Level 42 with Chinese Way, which features some fantastic lyrics, which we'll come to later. Um, (laughs) There was Heartbreaker by Pat Benatar, which was a request spot. That actually came out a few years before. Soweto, Malcolm McLaren, uh, Madness, Tomorrow's Just Another Day, Toto, Bloody Africa. Uh, <laughs> no, just Africa. <laughs> Not bloody Africa. Yeah. Blo- blo- bloody Toto. Bloody Toto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bloody Toto. Uh, Tunnel of Love, Fun Boy 3, Nature Boy, Central Line, UB40's I've Got Mine, and, as we said, uh, on the cover, Ice House, and Hey Little Girl. I want to... The musical you think... I, we're probably you've got other things to say about it but it just reminded me my and you were talking about local radio my mum was always on local radio doing competitions radio london (laughs) blah blah blah. and i remember she had to review the top five singles uh and well there was new singles it was like new releases and one of them was asia a band called asia and i think the track was called only time will tell but the other track i do remember reviewing was um i passed the duchy by musical youth and the best she could come up with she just said oh it's a bit repetitive that was the only thing she could say about it but i just every, she's not wrong yeah well she isn't wrong, she's not wrong. but um, every time i see it, i just think of my mum just saying that yeah it's a bit repetitive the, the Lester Bangs of commercial radio. <laughs> Talking of musical youth, they were kind of local lads because I grew up in Solihull, just on the outskirts of Birmingham. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, my nan and granddad were, for some reason, they really liked Pass the Duchy. Obviously, they didn't find it too repetitive. They really liked it. Um, and I remember one day <laughs> my nan telling me, this must have been about this kind of time, 82, 83, um, they've got the train back um, to Shirley from town and they said uh my nan and granddad said oh we saw um we saw musical youth uh from the train window i was like oh what what were they doing said oh yeah they were just on um just on a roundabout just playing on the playground i don't think it was musical youth (laughs) (laughs) i think they'd just seen a group of young lads and just oh it's musical youth you know (laughs) (laughs) sorry it just reminded me but looking at this, uh, you know, from a, an editorial and, and uh, staff point of view on Smash It's, um, David Hepworth is the editor on this one. Uh, but moving into the final month of his editorship on the magazine, and by by the end of March, um, Mark Ellen will be uh, taking uh, over the reins from there. And also uh, Neil Tennant, 
is uh, involved in this issue as well, and we'll we'll encounter Neil as uh, as we go through. So let's turn that page, and uh, we get to a section called Start. Which, uh, looking back through previous editions of Smash, it seemed to uh, appear around about the um, uh, September of 1982. And it's kind of like a, a photo-heavy bits, really. Bits comes a little bit further on in the magazine. Uh, so on this one, um, it begins with a, a personal file of uh, Linton Beckles from Central Line. And then those, those photos. Um, the first one is... Steve Norman from Spandau Ballet having a bit of fisticuffs with the uh, boxer John Conti. Uh, Rich, do you want to tell us what all that's about? <laughs> well, interestingly, it, it, well, it's the it's talking about the shoot for uh, the communication video for Spandau Ballet, but um, anybody who's seen it, and I've seen it about six times in the last <laughs> two three days, um, the, none of the band appear in it. It's only uh, only Hadley who it's only Hadley who appears in it, and uh, John Conte plays. Well, I think he's a villain. I think he's a baddie. Um, but it's all um, <laughs> filmed down in uh, London Docks, which uh, where Canary Wharf is now. I think. I mean, it's all along that. Uh, I mean, I was I was sort of looking looking into it, and there's a Depeche Mode video that was shot down there, and Long Good Friday, um, and then Limehouse Studios was there where they used to do Spit and Image and Treasure Hunt. And I saw a, a music show called Rock in the Dock recorded there in '85 with Mary Wilson was the was the, the the guest act. So yeah, that bit of Docklands, which is now Canary Wharf, or you know, that's that's where they are. And it's um, I think the pitch went that it's um, we want to do a kind of Cold War espionage type. Um, set up with Hadley as this sort of super spy and John Conte as this sort of Mr. Big. But I think the reality is that they ended up in Woolwich Arsenal with Leslie Ash and a Ford Capri. I think that's basically <laughs> that's basically what happened. They just didn't have any money. So um but yeah it's actually quite a good video. It's actually quite a good video. And and Hadley does a pretty good turn as a sort of spy in a in a leather map, uh wandering around Woolwich Ferry with his very uh, very big camera. Um, and there's a lovely there's a lovely car stunt in it where the two cars are racing down, and Hadley generally looks like he's you know he's really driving it and in amongst it. But yeah, that, it, in in the short answer to your question is yes, that's what this photo is about. The, the basic synopsis of it, I, th I, I think, from watching it a few times, is Tony Hadley is very sophisticated because at the start he's listening to classical music, which is a shorthand for sophistication, uh, sitting around with Leslie Ash doing that. Then he gets a phone call from John Conte, who seems to be hiring him <laughs> to then take photos of John Conte. I don't quite know what that's about with his camera gun. Uh, and then Leslie Ash disappears with John Conte, and he doesn't know that at first, and he has to blow up some photos to see that actually she was in the back of his uh, car. Then he has a bit of a car chase, and then he gets so upset by seeing this enlarged photo of Leslie Ash in the back of John Conte's car that he drops a trim phone on the enlarged exposure of her. That's pretty much it, isn't it? <laughs> it makes that much sense. Yeah, I can see why they made it. That's a beautiful pitch. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's from that time when um, the, the 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 scale and ambition of videos was uh, pop promos was starting to grow. You know, it's more than just a band in a studio mumming along to, to the latest song or recreating a live performance sort of situation. Yeah. There's a whole kind of um, thing going on here where they're almost trying to recreate uh, a film within uh, three four minutes. Yeah. In Woolwich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, below that is a photo of Toya with her Mini Pops double, which is, uh, again, something that I've managed to find on YouTube, added to the playlist, the Mini Pops singing Toya's um, I Want to Be Free. <laughs> I can't watch those things. Well, even at the time, you know, I, I, I was probably the perfect age, you know, and nine, nine years old, ten years old when Mini Pops was on, because that was um, early days of Channel 4. But even then, I knew it was wrong, you know? <laughs> it, it made my skin crawl in a way that I just can't find the, the words to express it. But watching that clip back, it's quite impressive in that it's all done as a single one-camera shot. So they've got this this girl who's she's actually taller than Toya, but probably about eleven years old, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and doing doing this this quite uh, engaging performance straight to camera for for that whole kind of two minutes. So yeah, go and have a look at that on the uh, on the playlist if you dare. <laughs> I um I did Google the production designer of Mini Pops and uh, who's a designer called Keith Wilson who had designed the new Avengers and Space 1999, amongst other things. Um, and he ended up doing mini pops. God bless him. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's great because they kind of do urban. It's basically the mini Toya just sort of peering through, you know, uh, wire railings. You know, that's that's essentially yeah. there uh, and lots of smoke. And that's um, ticking the urban box by them doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> And then we move on to the uh, main page of Start, and uh, there's a group photo there of uh, lots of pop stars. Who have we got in there? We've got some Banana Ramas, a few Bell stars, um, Kim Wilde, and uh, lurking at the back, Dave Lee <laughs> Travis. But in, in, in enough, <laughs> less said about that, the better. And this is for the um, Rock and Pop Awards that had taken place at. It was at the Lyceum. Yeah, uh, and uh, Rich, you found a few few clips of that, which uh, on YouTube, which we've stuck on the uh, the playlist there of um, yeah, and Diamond and David Kidd Jensen as the the presenters for this, <laughs> and Diamond with a very fetching headband as well, which I thought you know kind of Le Bon esque. <laughs> Headband. Um, <laughs> I, I went. To, the first gig I ever saw at the Lyceum was the end of '83. So, you know, less looking at that clip is really weird because I'm thinking, well, less in less than a year's time, I'm going to be there seeing John Fox and lots of dry ice. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's a, there's a great clip. It's the Bell Stars clip at the end is brilliant. Um, I was I had that Bell Stars album. I was I had a bit of a crush on several members of Bell Stars at the time. And then in amongst it is somebody who's very 80s, is the guy from Coronation Street who's just in there. Um, what's his name? I wrote Chris it. Quentin. Yes. I was going to say, that makes it the most 80s photo ever, doesn't it? Yes. Because he's in it. <laughs> he's in it. And loving every second of it by the looks of it. Yeah, and also in there, in the in the throng, is uh, Smash It's Very Own Bev Hillier. There's a little photo of her um, posing with uh, Boy George as well. Oh. And next to that, a little photo of Joe Boxers, uh, introducing us to the band. My uh, 
we'll talk, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about the singles, but my mate actually came round early this evening, who I said was uh, was in the video, and I asked him about their look, and I, and he said apparently because I we we talked about it um, earlier in the week, thinking it might be something to do with Dex's, but actually. The, the, he told me that the look was uh, based on a, a group of guys called the Dead End Kids who were around in the 30s and then the 50s and it's Angels with Dirty Faces and it's that um, particular film and that look is what they what Dig based the Joe Boxers look on. So now you know. Good fact-finding. And they went on to influence Peaky Blinders by the looks of things <laughs> as well. Um, a connection between um, Joe Boxers and, and Spandau Ballet, or rather the videos, because the I think it's the video for the setting single. Was it just got lucky? Yeah, it's shot in the same place. It's all sitting and around. And working in the film business, I kind of know how that works, because you kind of <laughs> get to know of a location that's available and every idiot wants to use it. So, in fact, it looks like that Joe Boxers photo is actually taken taken down there anyway but yeah i i just guess it's a sort of you know a location comes becomes available and then everybody just wants to wants to dive in and use it because people are lazy <laughs> So moving on to our first feature, and we get quite quickly into the features, and it's the uh, cover stars, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, or OMD by this time, as uh, I think they're being commonly referred to. And uh, this was with your man Mark Allen going down to meet them. Gav, do you want to uh, set the scene for us here? Yeah, so I talked before about the Summer Four Flags, and um, down the left-hand side of the interview... Each member of the band is holding the flags in a certain uh, styly. And uh, I was having a look yesterday. I was like, I wonder if it's some kind of secret code. And um, it seems to be six BMX. Now, I don't know if that's what they had for Christmas, <laughs> just passed, or what they'd wanted. I'm not quite sure, but I think it's a coded message from uh, the lads of OMD about BMX bikes. <laughs> I don't know. If there's anyone else out there that's more of an expert in semaphore than I am. I used to do it. I used to oh, do really? semaphore. Oh, well, God. I can only go so far. I was... Um... <laughs> There's a confession. I never thought I'd ever say this ever. Um, I did. I was a sea cadet um, back in the late seventies. Not very punk, and I, I, I can't even describe this because this is ra- this is a sort of a, a non-visual medium. But you basically go A, B, C. D. You kind of do that. So I could go like the first twelve, fifteen letters, and then you end up doing all the crossing of the hands. So I was just looking at it. I did wonder whether they're just spelling out the first letter of their name, but I suspect being OMD, it's probably a little bit more cleverer than that. <laughs> I like the BM- I like the BMX thing, though. Well, it's a theory. Yeah, you know. I love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I'm like a pop kid, Dan Brown, trying to work out the way these little tentacles fit together, you know. So uh, we get to the interview itself. And it, it finds OMD in a strange kind of place, really. So uh, Architecture and Morality was a was a big hit, and they, they talk about how many thousand copies they sold in the interview. And they're just on the cusp of releasing Dazzle Ships, which, you know, has gone on since to become very critically lauded. But at the time, commercially, it wasn't as successful as uh, the previous record. And you really get a sense in this interview of them being a bit out of step with the giddy carousel of pop, not the podcast, but the actual world of pop that they were moving in, and their place in it and wondering exactly where they fitted in. I'll give you a little uh, a little taster from the interview that kind of gives you uh, an idea of where OMD saw themselves at this time. So from Mark's piece, he says, uh, As they'll repeatedly tell you, OMD don't want to be pop stars, and they certainly dress accordingly. 
Having wandered through the cool, airless corridors of the Holiday Inn at Swiss Cottage, past echoing pools squirming with bronzed, martini-supping maidens and low-lit bars, being propped by dapper media men in sparkly shirts, the sight of Andy McCluskey emerging from his hotel room appears faintly ridiculous. Chunky fair isle sweater, thick practical cords, he's in the process of clambering into hardy lace-up shoes, the sort you'd expect to conceal a compass in the heel. <laughs> the quieter Paul Humphreys is a little different. Parallel trousers, a pastel V-neck just revealing a button-down collar and tie. He has the neat but still slightly crumpled air of a science student at a vicarage tea party. The pile of books on genetics stacked on the table complete the image. I suddenly get the feeling I'm about to be lectured. We've never rabbited on about unemployment or nuclear weapons, announces Andy before the tea's even arrived. We consider those to be trivia, to be symptoms of a larger problem. He leans back. And that is... The entire mental framework of the human species. An uneasy silence. And that, he says, pointing at the books, is where genetics comes in. So, so you know, it's not your typical Spandau Ballet kind of interview or, you know, whatever. It's a little, it's a little bit more serious. Uh, and they talk about going off to Germany for a tour and feeling like they didn't really know what they wanted from... Uh, from their musical career, uh, they they talk about having Genesis as tour manager, and uh, it says uh, the manager had told them that OMD would be B.I.G. the next Genesis, the next Pink Floyd, fifteen lorries just for lighting rig, all dry ice and flying pigs, that kind of stuff. There was an air, says Andy, if you're on your way, lads, keep it up for a few more years, be predictable, couple more big tours and you're there. And we thought we don't want this, we don't want a career, help. We were going to be old before we were even 24. So it's amazing to think how young they were. Yeah. And they were already terrified, really, of being, you know, predictable and churning out the same sort of stuff. They obviously had ideas that were kind of grander than that, but I guess they just didn't know quite where they fitted in. They talked later on in the article about hating Top of the Pops and performing on there. So, yeah, like I say, every kind of smash hits that we do, or pretty much everyone from around this era... I don't know, so if you've noticed this, but there always seems to be at least one interview with a band that don't seem to be enjoying their ride on the Giddy Carousel, and I think we found this issue's one. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I love that they're staying in the Holiday Inn in Swiss Cottage. Um, that that's, um, <laughs> that that just made me laugh. Having lived above the Holiday Inn down in Brighton, and I found this clip. Uh, this is sort of slightly going off piece, but I found this clip of uh, Nationwide doing Bowie on the Aladdin Sane tour. He stayed at the Holiday Inn in Brighton and there's some footage of him. And I always thought, always thought it was incredible that there's this footage of Bowie coming out the door that I used to come out every morning uh, to, go, <laughs> to go to work. So the Holiday Inn was definitely the place for pop stars to go when they were on tour. Thompson Holidays, uh, a feature on the Thompson Twins. Uh, this is Peter Martin, um, who's talking to the Thompson Twins, who seem like much more willing participants of um, the, the whole pop world and enjoying their ride yeah. on the uh, the giddy carousel of pop, definitely. Uh, <laughs> it, it, there's such a huge contrast between this piece and the OMD piece that, that we were just looking at. It talks about this in the piece in that it was quite a large and shambolic band and they slimmed down, they trimmed down the members down to the core three-piece that we all know and love. And I think they were kind of really focused, but also having a lot of fun with it, certainly in the, the, the first couple of years. Um, that Quick Step and Sidekick album, is there's an advert for it 
later in the issue. It's a great, great album, really good. And the Love on Your Side and Lies, a really good single. And We Are Detectives, a really good single. They absolutely nailed it with the kind of, because they had a, there was a particular logo, a font for the typeface for their band name. And then they had that, they, they cottoned onto this image very early doors of the outline of their heads. There was like three heads. And certainly by the time you get to the Gap album, which is the really big album for them, that that's their kind of branding and just features here, there and everywhere. I just thought, yeah, I, at the time, I, I thought they were great and the 12-inch mixes were always very good. And th- yeah, they, they, they were a good outfit then. It all went, it all goes a bit you know it all goes a bit south when they get to King for a day and later on but at, at this moment I thought they were fantastic. Well, I, th- I think that there's, there's a reason why it, it might go south a bit, and I think it's because they really broke through big in America, and a, a big part of this feature is about their success in the states. Um, they're just about to go off on a, a three month US tour. It mentions that um, they're currently enjoying their second US disco number one with Lies, the first being In the Name of Love, which stayed at the top for five weeks, and it also mentions um, a US TV special. Uh, it says that featured the best of British acts such as ABC, the Human League and Dexes. The surprising thing was that the twins actually headlined the whole event. Thompson Mania, just wait and see. Um, but like many uh, other British bands uh, of this era, so Culture Club, Duran Duran uh, especially, who got a lot of success in the States. And I think that's probably largely due to MTV. Uh, I think that's, that's a commonly well-known thing that these British bands were, were putting out um, singles with videos. And so MTV were, were picking up on these things. And th- that I think that's responsible for this, what they call the second British invasion. And uh, we'll come to that a little bit more in bits as well. But I think this is where it goes wrong for the Thompson Twins and possibly for a few other British acts in that this American success becomes the thing that they then have to maintain. And then they find themselves working towards that formula to suit American radio rather than doing what they were doing, you know, without that kind of influence or, or direction. And that's when it all starts to kind of turn a little bit. We see it, we see it with, with Duran Duran uh, and we see it with Spandau Ballet um, that are kind of transformed in, in this, well, th- th- this year, 83, 84. Uh, and, that's where we see those those bands that have come up maybe through the new romantic period uh, and into early 83 getting that american success and then how it changes uh, changes them and how they then struggle with that yeah joe joe says we're not in our passionate period at the moment we've had our cult phase now it's time for our weird commercial phase but then as you say si that that weird commercial phase then just becomes the commercial phase and less weird I think that's what happens. They lose the weird. Yeah, and this is where um, uh, Alana Curry comes in. Uh, she says, I, I like disposable pop. For instance, my favourite song at the moment is that in Deep single. I'm guessing that she's talking about last night in DJ Save My Life. It's really bland and repetitive, but it's empty enough to fill your own imagination, which I think is really important. That way, she adds rather mysteriously, you can add something of yourself to each song. She always struck me as being quite fiery, Alana Curry. I wouldn't like to have a row with her. She was, you know, they they kind of grew up in the in the squat scene in London, and she was in a band called the Unfuckables. Oh, nice! Which you know didn't get mentioned in Smashes. But there we go. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah. And also, she's married. This blew my mind. I found out she's married to um, Jimmy Corti out of KLF. 
and has been married to uh, to him for quite a while now. So oh, nice. um, yeah, she's still working as an artist and doing a thing. Yeah, so fair fair play to him, I say. Then we get to Bits, what I always call the beating heart of Smash It's Neil Tennant is the editor of Bits at this point in uh, Smash It's history. And it starts with the Bell Stars talking about a recent trip to Japan. Uh, the Bell Stars have been to Japan. Why? Why does anyone go to Japan? We were doing a TV commercial for beer, says Jenny Bellstar, following hot on the heels of other Nipponese commercial stars like David Bowie, Banana Armour and Madness. And she, she goes on to say that um, they think they were booked to do it because there were so many members of Bell Stars that they kind of maybe looked a bit like a, a female Madness. Uh, well, they're stiff. They were stiff records, weren't they? Uh, the Bell Stars. So yeah, they were yeah. stiff records. Yeah, some deal gone on. Yeah, and uh, there's well, lots of things going on here. Neil Tennant gets to choose his five favourite songs of the day. Um, he chooses um, Africa Bambatas and Soul Sonic Force, looking for the perfect beat. Um, Forest and Rock the Boat. Yvonne Elliman, Love Pains, Yarbra and Peoples, Heartbeats and Aztec Camera, Oblivious. The Neil Tennant doing uh, Neil Tennant about love pains because he did that they did that with Liza Minnelli didn't they the Pet Shop Boys that was a that was one of her solo singles that the Pet Shop Boys did so possibly that's where that seed was from ah. Pop Kids <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next to that a little uh, bit on David Bowie it says The Finn White Duke that's F-I-N mentioning that he's signed to EMI Records or EMI America I think it was an undisclosed sum, uh, but they uh, say here that it's a a rumour to be $17.5 million. It says, a new single should appear in March, which I went out and bought. This is just as I got into, massively got into David Bowie. As we moved house, one of my brothers came to visit and he dropped off a load of LPs for safekeeping, which was pretty much all David Bowie's back catalogue up to that point. And I'd got a few singles, but then on, on my little £20 pound stretcher record player in my bedroom, just set two on these albums, and that's when I really, really got into properly, got into David Bowie. So, you know, three weeks later, whenever it was, a month later, when Let's Dance came out, I was straight down <laughs> Woolworths. Uh, me and my dad me and my dad were on the um, a really early bus on a Saturday morning, the X29, into town, uh, which was now, because we, we used to live quite near the, the city, centre of Sheffield and we were now kind of 10 miles out of the city centre so it's quite a long bus journey and he wanted to buy a lawnmower and I'd gone into town with him especially to buy the um, Let's Dance single so yeah it mentions um, the single in March which was Let's Dance and Let's Dance the album in April uh, and he says while the British leg of his world tour should happen in May June and uh, I think that was uh, somebody's first gig wasn't it? Yeah yeah well isn't it weird that this is possibly where I read about that for the first time yeah because i went to the that was the milton Keynes gigs and um yeah that was my first gig and i'm going to mention ice house again because they were the support band weren't they? they they were the support band yeah yeah and <laughs> and the beat which was the beats last gig as the original beat lineup they never performed again live together um it, it was weird just looking at this magazine again and this issue again rather and seeing that because yeah that's probably where uh where the idea 
popped into my head and me and my mate Jeff went off and saw Bowie in the summer. <laughs> do you remember much about the gig other than the uh, the support bands? I just remember, yeah, I do. I mean, it's sort of oddly, um, it sort of cropped up a few times recently in conversation. I just remember it being blisteringly hot. It was a It was a really hot weekend. And I think he had planned to do two nights and then they added the third so that there was the Saturday and Sunday so I think it was the 2nd and 3rd of July and then the Friday was an extra date that he announced we had already obviously got tickets for the Saturday I can't remember where I bought them I just remember them being £10 which feels like a truckload of money back in 1983 but I bumped into somebody I knew there which was really weird in the toilets and um, yeah I just remember seeing a sea of people I mean it was I'd never seen I mean, it's 80,000, 85,000 people. I'd never seen that many people in one place in my life. So, yeah, but it was great. And it was, you know, I was sort of fudging it a little bit because I wasn't, I mean, I was a sort of getting into Bowie. I think I'd sort of Scary Monsters I sort of knew about and Changes 1 I knew about. My mate Jeff was a bigger music you know, buying more records than I ever I ever did. So I was forever borrowing stuff off of him. You know, I didn't know every song. So there was a bit of sort of fake karaoke going on when, when we were surrounded by people who knew every word and every, you know. But um, I remember it as an experience. I think that's probably the best thing. And they had, the, they had a, a, a giant screen, which again, I think there was, because it's Bowie, it was probably one of the first in the country. So these things called a Jumbotron, which was this really big telly on top of the stage and um so just having that was very exciting and you know being able to be that far back as we were and but still being able to see his face was just very novel you know it just felt like you know quite exciting but yeah good times and i should actually mention that the the finn reference in that little headline uh for that is that um david bowie's also got a little cameo in the film uh yellow beard where he plays a shark uh, so that's <laughs> that's mentioned <laughs> so rather tenuous um but there you go now what was the other thing yeah so uh, just comparing Neil Tennant's uh, five songs of the moment to opposite that on the same page, <laughs> Fish from Marillion, who I think were probably enjoying their first taste of chart success around around about that time. Uh, and uh, Fisher's top ten, and uh, I think it's probably albums. Let's, let's just run through them quickly here, and uh, you can make your own mind up <laughs> as to uh, where Fish is at, and some of this, well, most of this won't be surprising anyway, whatsoever number one he's got pink floyd and the wall number two genesis the lamb lies down on broadway three peter hamill and over uh, number four yes close to the edge number five kate bush the dreaming number six random hold the view from here and uh, then he, he, i think he's trying to get a bit hip and with it uh, from this point on uh, with uh, the teardrop explodes kilimanjaro the doors and their first album ultravox and vienna and uh, then one from just the year before um, ABC's The Lexicon of Love. So I think he's trying to show that he's, he's a man of, of many tastes there, but it's, uh, yeah, v- very prog-heavy, and that just that just weighs it down. Yeah. I, um, I, I wrote, I just wrote predictably proggy. That was what I wrote. And then I put, could be an album title. <laughs> it's very, uh, very serious. He was, only, he was only 25 at that point. Oh, wow. You know, it's like... The absolute opposite of Neil Tennant. I mean, I guess he was a similar kind of age to Neil Tennant. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, they couldn't be more different, could they? But I like um, the, the kind of scope and range of artists that are being featured in this uh, issue of Smashes. Because they're at the top of the page. Laurie Anderson, of course, she'd um, been uh, in, in the charts quite recently with the uh, still fantastic Oh Superman, a song that um, just gets better, I think, uh, as, as the years go by. Also um, announced in this issue of Smashes is uh, Paul Weller's new group will be called The Style Council. At present, he has only one recruit, Mick Talbot, expert and Parkers in the Bureau, who Paul reckons is the finest young soul jazz organist in the country. But others will be enlisted when he finds them. And if you saw the um, Sky Arts documentary about um, the Style Council last year, uh, you'll know all about that. And if you didn't see it, find it, watch it. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. And we've also got Bloody Toto again, haven't we? <laughs> Bloody Toto. Look, uh, what are they wearing, for fuck's sake? I mean, really. <laughs> Smash its resident fashion editor there. <laughs> I know it was the 1980s, but there's no excuse to look like that, is there? No. They make Bill Werbenuk look good, you know. I don't know. It's, it's a bad... I was just about to say they look like the match room. Yeah. There's another, there's another, there's another <laughs> reference for the kids. There's a, there's a definite early early 80s kind of snooker vibe going yeah. on there, isn't there? On some of them. <laughs> Absolutely woeful. They all need a trip to the hairdressers, I reckon. I mean, look, look at the look at the hair on that lot, eh? They've got Jeez. lockdown hair before lockdown was a thing. <laughs> very ahead of the time. But just above that says, uh, yet more UK groups stormed the US singles chart at time of writing. The Clash of number eight, Phil Collins, 10, Adamant, number 12, Musical Youth, number 13, Culture Club at number 18, Duran Duran, number 19, A Flock of Seagulls at number 30, Joe Jackson, 33, Dexys at 47, ABC at 49, and Thompson Twins at 55. It's quite incredible mm. when you see that. And I guess this is the um, second British invasion that uh, they were experiencing in the USA. But of course, to us, this was just all the bands that were just normally in our charts. But it is a reminder of how much good pop music was coming out of this country at this time. <laughs> Uh, we turn the page, we get a couple of more um, lyrics. Rocker's Revenge, The Harder They Come, where... Uh, well, it's a cover of the Jimmy Cliff song, The Harder They Come, but um, Mr Rocker's Revenge seems to sing Rocker's Revenge in it quite a lot, just so you don't forget who you're listening to. And next to that, squeezed in, just down the edge of the page, Level 42 and The Chinese Way. Oh, I was looking through these lyrics there. They're amazing. It says, take a journey back in time, leave the Western world behind. Cross the mountains to Peking, where the paper lanterns gently swing. <laughs> and then it goes, my eyes wide open, I feel a breeze. Words softly spoken in Cantonese. <laughs> and then my favourite bit. Standing at the master's side, then with patience he confides. Secret knowledge, sacred ways, pearls of wisdom from the dragon days. <laughs> I just thought it was fantastic, that. I love it. It's uh, Oriental jazz funk. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very niche kind of uh, thing, that, isn't it? Yeah, with, with, with all the depth of the local Chinese takeaway menu. <laughs> yeah. I think. yeah, I felt like Mark King had really understood the Chinese culture there with those lyrics. He'd really dived deep, hadn't he, into, uh, put, you know, put himself in in there and uh, came up with those. That's amazing. Some great poetry there. <laughs> I think has echoed down the ages. You know, it still appeals now, all these years later. There's depth and truth in them, their words. 
that was a good day's work there for Mark King. Never mind his thumbs. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and then we get to into another um, smash it staple of the day. Get smart, um, Linda, who answers your questions. And Crikey, she's she's got a, a lot of questions to answer in this one. Um, she's like a, a one woman Google before Google existed. And the first question, referring back to an artist that we've already encountered in this issue with. Um, well, we can say the name of the program, and we won't say the name of the person, but we, you'll know who the pr- person is. Uh, can you tell me if musical youth sing the signature tune to Jim will fix it, as I reckon they do, but my sister disagrees. Devoted of Berry, um, you win the bet, is the answer. They recorded it especially for the program and about, about two months ago, and it's now turned up on the B-side of their current single, Never Gonna Give You Up. And indeed, that is true. Again, one that you'll find on the YouTube playlist for this edition of The Giddy Carousel of Pop. Funnily enough, not on Spotify. You can't find it on there. Uh, But Julian Cope, question about him. Now that the teardrop explodes have split, could you please tell me what Julian Cope is up to in the musical world? And if When I Dream from Kilimanjaro was ever released as a single? That's Steve Horton in uh, McGull. Um, Yeah, I mean, the burning question there about When I Dream, uh, was it ever released as a single? um, I like the, uh, the answer. Having spent some time rehearsing and putting together a band in Liverpool, Cope has just recorded a session for the John Peel show on Radio 1, and by all accounts appears to be back on form again after a troublesome last six months. That's troublesome. And inverted commas. And When I Dream was indeed released as a single around September 1980. But yeah, I think uh, yeah, Julian Cope and Troublesome. Hmm. That ain't the half of it if you've ever read uh, Head On and Repossessed. And uh, there's somebody moaning on, on about uh, the Olivia Newton-John fan club. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's yeah. hilarious. They sent a letter to the Olivia Newton-John fan club and it was returned to them. And, uh, yeah, just having a right old moan about um, fan clubs and, and stuff like that. So I'm just curious to know, while we're talking about fan clubs, were, were either of you ever a member of any fan clubs for, for pop stars? Adam and the Ants. Ant Warrior. <laughs> I was an Ant Warrior, yeah. I've got my uh, my little card somewhere still. What about you, Rich? I have a confession to make. It's not a good confession. I I was a Howard Jones fan club member for about a year. I'm really sorry. I was far too old. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> what sort What sort of stuff do you get from that? Did, did you get some mental <laughs> chains from mental it or something? <laughs> used to get used to get a single. You the first that that first year I was a member. You got a seven inch single with a live two live tracks on. But I saw him at the end of 83 at the Lyceum and uh, I joined the fan club, but again, probably far too old to be joining fan club. So, um, yeah, I did. I, I, I confess now I was a Howard Jones fan club member. But the less said about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that thing in that um, about the Living Newton John where they advise ELO fans are advised to stop writing. It's just made me. <laughs> How many of them were there? <laughs> yeah, the ELO fan club has ceased operations. <laughs> oh, and any new members who may want to join are advised not to write. <laughs> Uh, then uh, somebody has spotted um, Bono wearing a uh, Smash It's t-shirt on a recent appearance on the Tube. Uh, it was it Claire in uh, Radlett was asking if these t-shirts were still available. Uh, but they, they were advertised in the summer of 1980 and uh, well and truly sold out by this point. But next issue of Smash It's, you get some free badges, so all's not lost, Claire. We turn the page once more. Ooh, 
There's a feature called the Chinese way, but it's not level 42. I'm not making a return here. It's uh, about China crisis. There's two sides to the China crisis story. One's called Gary, the other's Eddie. Actually, there's the third side, the bloke who wrote it, Neil Tennant. And Neil speaks to the members of China crisis individually. And again, an interesting piece in that they'd only just recently made the charts with Christian. And they're very, very young. But they look older. Did you not think? I just thought they looked a lot older than that, than they are. Yeah. And and the, the music would suggest that they're a lot older than they are. But I think they're both still living at home with the parents in, in Kirby, um, just outside Liverpool. And nobody's given them any, any training on how to be a pop star or anything like that. It's very um, quite uh, honest answers, hmm. but not particularly entertaining in, in <laughs> no, any way. There certainly is a lack of entertainment in this, isn't there? It's a bit like the OMD one, really, in that it's quite, it's quite serious and... Um, there's not a lot of fun in it, you know. We we think of smash hits from this around this time as having a lot of humour, and there's very very little humour to be rinsed out of this. Well, maybe it's something to do with uh, bands from Liverpool of this period. I don't know. I mean, Liverpool wasn't a particularly um, happy place to come from at this time, and you know, it's uh, not long before this that Boys from the Black stuff was mm. on. You know, I I remember watching that as a kid, thinking that it was a comedy. Uh, and was waiting for the laughs. But anyway. But I think the most revealing parts uh, of this is when they're talking about the the background. There's one question, how does living in Liverpool affect you? And the answer from Gary, um, he says, uh, just having friends and family, knowing that your mum works nights at Jacob's, and your dad goes out and works as a painter and decorator, and your two brothers go out doing roof tiling. That's what I was doing before I was in the group. It's just that basic, really, and knowing what you're doing is not a job it's a career so i think you get a real kind of hard blast of real life and certainly you know that's that's the kind of background that i would have would have known you know with brothers who you know worked down the pit or as a milkman my dad worked on the buses and and things like that so i I think maybe it is actually quite relatable in that way but also um neil asks what's your home like and um, Ed's response to this, so he says, um, it's a four-bedroomed house and it's really run down. We had to have a big house because there was a lot of kids. Until I was 15, I never had my own bed. I had to share with my brother because there were so many of us. But now I've got my own room. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. He's got a deal with Virgin Records. He's in the charts in his early 20s and yet still talking about only just getting his own bedroom. Yeah, because Gary's still sharing a room with his brother. Yeah, that's he is as well. Yeah. So he's yeah. not even made it to those heights yet. He's still sharing. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, and, and I think this this question is a bit rich coming from Neil Tennant, knowing what we know about what Neil Tennant went on to do. He asked them, are you just another synthesizer duo? Oh. <laughs> so he's clearly sussing out the uh, the competition there. Because <laughs> I bought I bought Christian on twelve inch, and I thought they were uh, that was where they were heading in that sort of synthy sound. Um, and obviously they went off in a sort of slightly tears for fearsy direction. I guess would be the yeah, nearest I think that's fair thing. To say, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I loved Christian as a single when it when it first came out. I thought there's a piece in the article where they talk about the washing machine getting fixed. Yeah, you, you must have seen that. But yes. it's quite specific about fifteen quid for a new pump. It's a very specific <laughs> thing. Um, you couldn't imagine Rihanna talking about 
anything like that now, could you? Definitely not. Or could no, you? No, I don't know. you couldn't. You couldn't. Um, <laughs> like, well, like you say, so it's very much kind of rooted in reality, isn't it, of of life, yeah. um, you know, and the way they've lived it. And they're kind of quite embarrassed, really, about being pop stars. There's a, there's a funny little thing that happens uh, before the interview begins, and Neil's talking about meeting them. Uh, they've got the train from Kirby, and he meets them in the city centre in Liverpool. And it says, uh, with Gary's little case and Eddie's neat tweed jacket, they didn't really look like pop stars, but this week they were celebrating their first week in the top 30. To make the point, two young girls stopped them in the street to ask them for their autographs. Eddie ran off embarrassed. Gary signed. And, you know, just the fact that one of them is too embarrassed to even deal with signing a couple of autographs, it kind of tells you how they're yeah. feeling, you know, emotionally and coping with it all. And and that was a, an interesting kind of little um, little peek into their psyche, really. Also, another question that Neil asked as well that made me chuckle was at the end where he says, quite pointedly, what's the point of China crisis? <laughs> you know, it's rude. a little rude, isn't it? You know. Maybe if they'd have been together, I was thinking if they'd been interviewed together, they might have sparked off each other a little bit more and yeah. maybe had a bit more fun with it, but perhaps because they're on their own and, and they're so young and, that you know, they're they're very much in the early days of their kind of pop career, so they're quite serious. And Gary says, a sense of understanding, just being able to associate with certain things in the lyrics. And then Ed says, there's no big point about it. And again, it's that thing about them being very rooted in in life you know he says that i'm not trying to preach to anyone or tell anyone what to do they're really simple songs just observations so although there's there's not a lot of fun to be had from it but as a kind of without getting too heavy about it almost as a kind of a social bit of history you know and a a snapshot of of the world that that they were living in at the time it's probably more revealing than a lot of other interviews would have been So by contrast, we turn the page and uh, we find ourselves in the Hammersmith Odeon with Dave Rimmer reporting on a gig that's happening there called the Total Experience Tour, which is uh, the record label that boasts uh, the Gap Band and Yarbrough and Peoples as well and uh, some guy called Robert Goody Whitfield. And Dave's backstage uh, at one point. Well, actually, he, d- he does some star spotting in the audience, first of all, and, and he sees uh, Paul Weller, uh, Lee John and Errol Kennedy from Imagination, ex-Linkser David Grant, three of the Gang of Four, so that'd be Gang of Three, and uh, soul <laughs> veteran Isaac Hayes. Now, um, he's, he's backstage, uh, deep in the murky bowels of the Odeon, all is not well. Right, Dave. Um, somebody has got the Gap Band's trousers mixed up in their dressing room. <laughs> Charlie, one of the three Wilson brothers, who are the nucleus of the Gaps, holds up a silvery sequin pair of strides that no sane human being would be seen dead in. These aren't my shingles, he exclaims disgustedly. These are Robert's. He throws them down. It's the fact that they, they call them the missing Baco foil kecks. That's what really made me laugh, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And spangly combat gear. So there's a kind of, yeah, the fashion correspondent is working overtime. Apparently there are no trouser troubles with uh, Yarbrough and Peoples, and Peoples declares her ambition while in England is to sample some shepherd's pie. Yarbrough had some once and he loved it. <laughs> Hot news. Well, let's jump straight into the uh, centre spread, shall we? And Spandau Ballet, um, staring out us from the uh, the page there. 
<laughs> Tony Hadley in uh, blue shirt and braces. Uh, in fact, the braces on um, on the other guy as well, the sax player. Fella. Steve Norman. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a fella. <laughs> and uh, Gary Kemp in a rather fetching sailor's outfit. Now, <laughs> sailor's outfit. Now, Rich, you, you're leafing through your original edition of Smashes, and yours is missing this poster. I'm so. missing the poster, but uh, Gav's showing it to me in all its glory so yeah, yeah. but I, oddly i remembered it and i remembered that sailor top and i don't know why it's really weird sort of mind memory of that poster <laughs> do you think it, it made it to your bedroom wall? no definitely didn't make it i don't know where it's gone <laughs> i mean this is interesting this issue because it's it, just saying about you were saying earlier about spander this is pre-true you know one of the defining songs of of the 80s and we're not at that point yet. There's sort of, it's almost like hard to imagine a world without True by Spandau Ballet. It's one of the most recognisable songs ever written. And we're not there yet in this issue. Well, the True album is just about to come out. I think it comes out the following month. And then I think the single... Um, well, let's have a look. I've got my Guinness Book of British hit singles here. Always have this on the standby. Uh, the single True got to number one in April of eighty three. Oh, so we're quite close then. So it might have been on the radio by then. Yeah, so... Communication, which is a single that was out around the time that this edition of Smash It's was out, was from the True album, as was the single before, Lifeline. So, the, But there's no real indication that they've got True and Gold up their sleeves, both from the same album that's just yeah. about to come out. Mm. But there's, no, yeah, absolutely no indication whatsoever that, that those two songs are about to come out and transform the world's view of Spandau Ballet. Hen parties forevermore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Next page, we've got a full page advert for Hazy Fantasy's Battle Hymns for Children Singing, which, as I said earlier on, I went out and bought at the time because I bloody love John Wayne's Big Leggy. <laughs> <laughs> and shiny, shiny, and holy Joe. They were just, I think, you know, they were the closest I'd got back to Adamant, I think, you know, in that kind of just odd taking bits from different styles and mixing it all up in a weird pop way. And obviously, Kate Garner confused me a lot as a as a young man, <laughs> but in all the right ways. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Kate Garner was gorgeous, wasn't she? I mean, she's stunning. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened to the album. I, I must have given it away, you know, a few years later when I. Uh, I rid myself of my childish pop things, and, and I really regret it now. I, I've still got the singles, but I don't have the album. I need to get hold of a copy from somewhere. So they, they kind of mixed pop and, and fun with quite a dark, disturbing undertones as well, you know. Well, he's got the child catcher thing going on. He really <laughs> has, hasn't he? Chitty bang, bang. But yeah. they, were, they were kind of pals in McLaren. They were all part of that crowd mm. there was a sort of fashion term that mclaren and westwood came up with and i think it was called buffalo and garner and jeremy healy were part of the blitz crowd i think mm. and later on so they they all knew each other and they were all a kind of melting pot and i think i read somewhere that a bit like adam and where they raided the sort of bins of burnham and nathan's costumiers and that's where he got his <laughs> his outfit with all the braiding on. Yeah. I think a thing, a similar thing happened with Jeremy Healy and how he came up with this outfit. I think they raided an old theatrical costumiers or there was a sale or something and they just grabbed what they could and, and turned it into this thing. But yeah, he's, he's the child catcher. I mean, he's scary. He's really scary. And she's just, just looks awesome. Absolutely awesome. She's a photographer now. I, I follow her on um, Instagram and she's sort of, became a sort of fashion photographer and sort of lived somewhere in 
lives somewhere out in the States now and and just does her own thing. But yeah, it's just phenomenal. We then come to the singles review, and it doesn't say who's done them in this issue. It's normally credited to someone, but no one no one takes uh, credit in this particular uh, issue of uh, Hits. Um, but single of the fortnight goes to um, Joe Boxers and Boxer Beat. The reviewer saying, uh, I don't mind girls who want to look like Banana Armor, but when the boys start... Hopefully it'll be bands like the stunning Joe Boxers who will blow all the pouting pretties back whence they came. No synths, no wimpy vocals. Boxer Beat is a real barnstorming debut with native New Yorker Dig Wayne leading Vic Goddard's old band through a thunderous stomp which has captured all the passion of old 1960s soul. Watch them go. Yeah. Wow. A glowing review, but uh, but completely putting down uh, synth pop there. <laughs> True. How, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I did buy it. I, I bought it, and I bought Just Got Lucky as well. Um, doing a little bit of reading up about it, did you know that the boxer beat is actually the beat of the song? That's what a boxer beat is. So it's the it's the beat that goes on there. Uh, uh, apparently, that's where it comes from. Ah, I didn't know that. Um, but I really, I really, really liked it, and I. Um, uh, a mate of mine is in the video, which they filmed in a pie and mash shop in East London. And so he appears in the background, jumping up and down on tables. And he did tell me that they broke one of the tables and the record company wasn't very happy. So, Oops. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I loved it at the time. Uh, it's great. And uh, Dig Wayne's one of the first pop stars I ever saw in the wild. I remember coming out of Tottenham Court Road to go to the aforementioned version record store. And he was going in and passing him and just doing a you know, a clock and thinking, I know who that is. That's somebody famous. He was one of the first pop stars I ever saw in the flesh. Yeah, I like it. It's Yeah, it's a great tune, isn't it? And the energy's good in the video as well. One thing I should just mention, it is actually very hard to do the boxer beat because you have to make the blind so they see and the sad one's happy. And I think that's it's quite a tricky <laughs> ask of a 12-year-old lad, you know. I wanted to do the boxer beat, but... I couldn't cure blindness in people, so uh, I don't know. They should have rethought that, I think. Oh, I was just going to say that it's almost thrown away that another... We just talked about True, and there's the review of Sweet Dreams by Eurythmics here, and it's sort of mixed in with uh, with Men Without Hats and, and uh, Cash Flow, and it's almost like this is one of, again, one of the big records of the 1980s. It is, this is... You know, if there was ever a compilation show of the 80s, chances are you will hear a bit of Sweet Dreams. And it's almost lost in a in a review with two other records. Mm. It's really, really odd. And it's sort of unusual that they've done it because everywhere else that is a single review, they've kind of bunched them together. Yeah. T- talking, you know, Richard, about kind of reviews almost being thrown away in amongst everything else. And you've got Orange Juice, rip it up. Almost casually dismissed there, haven't you? You know, yeah. it says uh, nothing to do with Little Richard's moment of mayhem. In fact, this lot would find it difficult to rip their way out of a wet paper bag. Oh well, if all else fails, copy the Bell Stars and drag out that jangly James Brown guitar. And you know, rip it up. What a single that is! You it's know, and it's really <laughs> tossed away, isn't it? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. they're copying yeah. the Bell Stars, and that's it. You know, yeah. how can you deny yourself that pleasure? <laughs> <laughs> I find it hard to believe that someone would listen to that and go, "Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing in this. There's nothing life affirming or joyous in this that uh, will uh, will brighten up people's days." You know, it's just a very run of the mill thing. It's it's a wonderful song. I think it's amazing looking at these reviews. Is that there's how, how many of these records I didn't know? Yeah, do you know what I mean? I, I can't because when somebody 
you know, I'm I'm of that age where I think, well, I know lots of 80s records, you know, I know them all. And you look at these singles here and it actually happens on the albums as well. You think, I don't know half of these. Yeah. And again, I think it's it's straying into that more nighttime Radio 1, Enemy, uh, an almost whistle test kind of uh, territory, you know, with, with bands like Wall of Voodoo, um, yeah. certainly, yeah. Uh, and, and Pig Bag, the only kind of recognisable pop stars that you would have spotted straight away would be OMD, Madness are in there. Blamange. Uh, Blamange, Matchbox. Matchbox, <laughs> yeah. I just like the um, the opening sentence. There's not many rock and roll acts who are worse than Shaking Stevens, but here's one. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Um, but lurking yeah. uh, amongst all these singles reviews, uh, a future number one uh, by the one and only Bonnie Tyler, totally clips of the heart. Um, Jim Steinman, who wrote this, doesn't write songs; he writes five-minute operas. This is an epic tearjerker, very much in his meatloaf vein, but one which suggests that the combination of the Welsh gal's gutsy voice and Springsteen's E Street Band is a winner. And I suppose this would be a good opportunity to uh, to discuss, uh, or at least, you know, uh, highlight the, um, well, I think we can call it a classic video. It's one that, that we all remember, uh, I think, uh, from seeing on Top of the Pops back in the day. I remember there being uh, some sort of, and possibly some sort of urban myth or something like that, but a rumour went round that there was a, an actual ghost in the video but when i've when i've searched this on on the internet i can't find any any mention of that so that would maybe just my sister trying to wind me up or something like that i don't know <laughs> i never heard that before no i hadn't i mean it's really the campest just funniest epic of the whole decade really isn't it it's it's the most 80s video what i love about it is you've got all the cliches of 80s videos so you've got the billowing curtains you've got mirrors You've got dry ice, you've got slow motion doves and wind machines, <laughs> big hair that's going to go up if a match is put anywhere near it. But then there's a whole tonload of other weird shit thrown in on top of all that. <laughs> you've got, I mean, I'd forgotten some of the stuff that was in there. There's like freeform jazz ballet with the cast of Lord of the Flies at one point. <laughs> there's the flying choir boy. Uh, with low wattage bull buys, uh... <laughs> which apparently is an urban myth. That was uh, Jan Franco Zola, that kid. <laughs> I read on the internet. Apparently, he's actually admitted that it wasn't. He's had to come forward and say, <laughs> definitely wasn't me. I mean, it's fantastic. Again, you know, like, I mean, God, we thought the communication video didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this makes no sense whatsoever, doesn't it? Basically, she's she's at the school wandering around at night, I guess, in like a long, a long white dress that uh, that keeps blowing all over the place in the wind machines. And then it turns out at the end, she seems to be a new teacher at the school, maybe. And then a young lad <laughs> who's clearly far too old to be a, a pupil there gets introduced to her. And he's got he's got big bright eyes, and he sings to a turnaround bright eyes. Is he singing to himself? Is he singing to? He's the one with bright eyes. Why is he saying that to her? <laughs> That's what I want to know. There's so many questions. So many questions. It was um, <laughs> it was directed by Russell Mackay. I looked it up, and I so he did all of the Duran Duran videos. So he's responsible for the Rio and the you know the boat and and um, the Wild Boys video is one of his. He did. I'm still standing elton johns and then he obviously ended up directing highlander and actually if you look at her wandering through the corridors with all as you say billowing billowing curtains and hair and <laughs> doves and 
It's reminiscent of Highlander. It's kind of slightly low angle, wide shots, slightly fisheye lens, and Bonnie's backlit uh, as if her life depends on it. And um, and she's got some really wide shoulder pads. They are ridiculously wide. You know? <laughs> it's a wonder she got down the corridor. That's, <laughs> those. There's a bit where there's some American footballers kind of kind of do an American football dance up some stairs, and you know I think arguably their shoulder pads are smaller than hers. You've got a power dress for a power ballad. <laughs> But yeah, it's. Uh, I don't like it. I never liked it at the time, and I still don't like it. But the the video is uh, staggeringly brilliant. It is just yeah for all the cliches under the sun. I should I should say because I made allusion to it at the very beginning of the uh, the podcast about OMD standing in a giant wet room. And I said I thought I knew exactly where that photo had been taken. <laughs> and there's a bit where there's some lads. Who they're not in it? I don't know. I don't know quite where they are, but suddenly, like you see, I think slow motion water cascading across them, and the background is exactly like where OMD are standing. So my theory is, I guess OMD got in there first because if you look at the cover, there's not a drop of water on there. <laughs> I think they got in while it was dry. Bonnie Tyler's knocking at the door, going, "Andy, Paul, have you finished yet? Come on, we've got to shoot the video." <laughs> they do their thing with Sheila Rock. They get out. And then Bonnie and the lad straight in there doing tone eclipse <laughs> with Gianfranco Zola. <laughs> I think that's how it went down. That's a great pitch. Oh, it's hilarious. Uh, there's a great, if anyone's uh, not seen it as well, if you like literal videos where people kind of re-raise the original soundtrack and sing about what's happening on the screen, there's a really good one to Total Eclipse of the Heart that kind of describes the action as someone doing a very passable Bonnie Tyler impression. So... Uh, if you if you do like the video, I would recommend looking up the literal version of Total Eclipse of the Heart on YouTube as well. And then we get to a piece called And You Can Take Them With You. Gavin, would you like to tell us what all this is about? Certainly, I can set the scene for you. So um, they're looking at some of the latest technology on the market, various uh, Walkmans, uh, stereos, mini TV players, record players, that kind of thing. And we'll come to the prices in a moment, which are horrendously high. But um, <laughs> they've got six different pop stars. And it's a, what strikes you looking at it is it's, again, you know, we, we've talked a few times in this issue about the range of pop stars. and you, So you've got some A-listers. You've got Banana Armour there with their cassette recorders. And you've got Annie Lennox with her high-end um, Sony uh, colour video camera. And then you've got Wham with Shirley and Dee road testing their bits of equipment. And then we go down the ladder of pop, several... Uh, we, I think it's fair to say we've come off the carousel at this point and we're circling Le Dumper. Yeah. Because we've got uh, Mick Mullins of Modern Romance uh, <laughs> with his nice white shoes and uh, very, very blue trousers that aren't jeans. We've got Gary Tibbs from the recently disbanded Adam and the Ants and... Uh, Previously from uh, Roxy Music, he had a bit of a spell in. Mm -hmm. Now in American Tibbs, who didn't really set the pop world aflame. And uh, underneath Banana Armour, we've got the uh, the household name that is Lee Jury of Eraserhead, who looks a bit like Sid Vicious fishing outside an igloo for a, a frozen summer, a frozen fish. Uh, he's got a very nice um, portable record player that he's 
he's got there though i must say i'm quite envious of that that costs right let's have a look at some of the prices because these are these are great okay so so th this is a uh, a sharp v2 vertical record player i remember seeing this on the wall in in my local curries uh just before christmas 1982 and this i wanted it so badly it was attached to the wall in the shop and i couldn't believe that you could have a record player <laughs> that, i mean like i said it was attached to the wall so it's vertical and the records were playing in it and you didn't have to turn it over and i just wanted it so so badly i still look at them on ebay now <laughs> <laughs> bearing in mind that I, I was looking at one of those websites where it tells you the price of something then to now and it's roughly three times the these prices are what you'd expect to pay now. So the price then for this record deck was 259 quid. So, I mean, that's that's over 750 quid in today's money. I can give 2021. you... Exactly, how much it is. I've done the... Um... Okay, go on. <laughs> I've used the Bank of England uh, inflation calculator, £893.79. Wow. Even more than I thought. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, and that pales into insignificance if you look at the video camera that Annie Lennox is uh, filming some... What's she she's just filming some white space, I think. Yeah. Uh, For the next Eurismix video. <laughs> it was £1,248, which I guess if we multiply it by three and a half, it's going to be about five grand, isn't it, getting on for? £4,306.74. Wow. I mean, you could buy a car for that, can you? you could. A decent second-hand car, you know. <laughs> so it's fair to say they're not uh, pocket money prices, any of these things. The cheapest thing, uh, I think, is the Panasonic Way stereo cassette, kind of like a, a slightly cheaper version of a Walkman that Karen from Banana Armour has got, and that's £66.50, which would still be roughly 200 quid in today's money. You're not far off, £227.76. Wow. I mean, you know, at this time I was getting like, I think I was getting like a quid a week or something. I mean, I'd have to save it for years for any of this stuff, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> no, I mean, looking at this, all these items is like, yeah, I'll have one each of them. But certainly the record player would have been top of my list, closely followed by the um, the JVC CX5000 GB TV radio cassette uh, uh, yeah, bob that George has got. Yeah, but he doesn't care much for TV, so uh, it's wasted on him. <laughs> We've got a tiny TV screen in it, inbuilt radio, and, and a cassette recorder because you'd have been able to tape the soundtrack off the TV as well, and that would have just been uh, perfect for yeah. me. I was obsessed with recording everything, so yeah, th those would have been the two things top of my list there. I like the fact that Wow are wearing the the George and Andrew are wearing what they wore on top of the pops. That's the Young Guns outfit. Yeah, yes, you're right. I thought that was. Yeah, maybe that's the because they were they were up and coming pop stars. Maybe it's the only clothes they had. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but I thought that was quite and and also um, the photos are taken by Eric Watson, who did all the Pet Shop Boys stuff. Uh, who took all the the really you know well known Pet Shop Boys covers. I just thought that was worthy of note. What would you have fancied there, Rich? I would have gone for the record player as well, definitely, or just one of those Walkmans where the um, the Walkman pops out. So you get two for the price of one, which is one of the banana ramas is carrying Siobhan. Well, see, Siobhan's got it, so it must be good. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving on to the letters. So um, sometimes we gloss over them on slightly later issues because there's so many in-jokes and so much black type that is almost indecipherable to uh, to us all these years later. But this is kind of a... You, you definitely get more of a flavour of the kind of things that are 
raising the hackles of the pop kids in uh, in early 83. So there's lots of stuff about Kajagoogoo and whether they're just absolute tosh or, you know, uh, a good band. Someone from Glossop writes in, actually, a strawberry switchblade in Glossop. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah I noticed that, yeah. Uh, they're uh, writing in defence of Kajagoogoo because on a recent roundtable, the infamous Mark Ellen has slagged off Kajagoogoo on the grounds that they were fashionable and uh, a strawberry switchblade from Glossop has taken issue with that. The thing that I really noticed, well, there's a couple of things really. One of them was that looking through these letter pages over the uh, over the issues as we have done, there is often a letter from a heavy metal fan complaining about the lack of heavy metal. And again, <laughs> we've got another one here. It says, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Smash Hits was supposed to be a magazine for all tastes of music. Well, it certainly doesn't look like it to me, judging by your covers. This is how your covers have gone since December 1981. And they list them all, like, you know, Culture Club, Bauhaus. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. There's far too many to mention. Now, don't get me wrong. I like all the above-mentioned groups a lot and your magazine. But could you not at least once a year feature on your cover groups like Whitesnake, Deep Purple, <laughs> Gillen or Meatloaf? <laughs> Meatloaf. Meatloaf. <laughs> Meatloaf. <laughs> Is <laughs> the French the French version of meatloaf uh, or meatloaf to mention but a few decent groups uh, and that's from Gillen's hairbrush don't be cheeky he has got one so yeah that's a continuing theme I, I just think anyone that's really really into metal and you know they do often feature uh, metal bands in smash hits but they're not really going to put them on the cover are they and I think if you're really that into metal that you're that desperate just by Kerrang, mate. <laughs> Kerrang, Kerrang was going then, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was good. And there was also, um, this is quite interesting, I thought, just because of the time from 1983, there's a little letter that actually gets its own little picture, uh, a little Kipper Williams picture. Someone writes in, Morizo uh, Morezo from Lisbon writes to say, I'm writing to complain about all these Beatles reissues. Okay, they were a great group in their time, as your interesting facts article showed. But repackaging all their singles and bringing them out 20 years later is just a sophisticated rip-off by their record company. Surely they should be leaving the charts free for new bands instead of filling it up with ancient songs that have already been big hits. <laughs> if AMI spent as much money promoting new talent as they do bringing Beatles records back from the grave, we'd all be a lot happier. Well, welcome to 2021, because <laughs> 40 years on... We ain't stopped now. Now we're kind of going through all the outtakes and reissuing them. And yeah, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah, that was thirteen years after the Beatles had uh, finally ended it, and uh, we're still getting Beatles reissues every uh, every other week, pretty much. <laughs> Anything that stood out for either of you two on the letters page? Uh, I, I, well, actually, weirdly, I picked up on that that record thing. I, it was the what the last one from Louise B and Kerry Reed talking about their names for bands. And I, I mean, they're pretty lame in terms of the joke that they're trying to do. And I just thought at the end of it, I thought it took two of you to come up with that, <laughs> um, that list. Um, so she wants to call, well, she wants to call the Japan the Japs, which is a little bit dubious. Then there's the, the softies for soft sell, the alphabet boys for ABC, which kind of does the reverse, or the Bucksters for Bucks Fizz <laughs> and Hot Chocks for Hot Chocolate. The Bowsters for Bowers. <laughs> that's, that's very poor, isn't it? Very poor. <laughs> very poor. It's just two girls in a bedroom dreaming this up and writing it in, and it, yeah, it just made me laugh that that was the best they could do. And a letter opposite that, 
and he says, it seems to me that amid all the sensation of the jam, Japan and squeeze splitting up, everyone has overlooked the rearrangement of one of the world's supergroups. This winter, Brian Ferry and his fellow Roxies emigrated to Australia. <laughs> there, they decided to change the group's name and image, but not their sound. The result of all this is a single called Hey Little Girl, under the name of Ice House, <laughs> which is going up the charts in leaps and bounds. I would like to take this opportunity to wish Mr. Ferry the best of luck with this new venture. Uh, <laughs> and that's from Brian's old tuxedo, North Devon. Now, at, at a ten, tender age of you know nine, nine and a bit, uh, Roxy Music were my favourite band at that point. In fact, the Christmas before, um, my mom had knitted me a Roxy Music jumper. She'd asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said a Roxy Music jumper. So she she worked out how to knit the letters to spell Roxy Music on a a, a blue and black jumper, which I've still got uh, around somewhere. And uh, yeah, I remember hearing this on the radio and thinking that it was a new Roxy Music single because it's absolutely got that kind of late period Roxy Music sound. It could have come straight off, you know, like a dance away or same old scene Avalon sort of thing. It is absolutely that sound and I love this song, so... <laughs> and that is probably why. <laughs> There's another... One one more letter that caught my eye, just because of the start to it. It's that kind of clichéd start that you always get in um, letters pages of music papers. Just who the hell does Dave Rimmer think he is? Slagging off just funk. <laughs> Which is a great opening to a letter. Um, but then I'm a bit confused because the um, Sonia Spence from Warrington, who's, who's written this, says maybe you should listen to records like Planet Rock, E.T., Scorpio, or any other good rapping song by Grandmaster Flash, and then he will see how damn good jazz funk is. <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert on the genre, but I don't really think those are jazz funk, are they? <laughs> I wrote down exactly the same. <laughs> are they kind of early electro hip-hop kind of, you know, yeah. 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 I think Sonia's a bit confused by her genres there. And it was that I couldn't understand the abbreviation, the W-ton, so I just thought the Wu-Tang, I just read those Wu-Tang clan. <laughs> Sonia Spence from the Wu-Tang clan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's right. You got the yeah, Ghostface Killer, the Rizzo, Sonia Spence, Sonia Old Spence. Dirty Bastard. I think that's the main ones, right? <laughs> classic lineup. Classic lineup. Yeah. <laughs> Enter the thirty-six chambers of jazz funk. <laughs> so we go swiftly from the lettuce page onto RSVP. <laughs> Anybody there that you that you feel like writing a letter to? This made me laugh. Oh, there's a couple. Yeah, there are. Go on, Richard. I I um well only one I want to pick up because working in the film business, when I see a postcode, I want to Google street maps and find out where it is. <laughs> um, so I kind of looked. I looked a couple of these addresses up as well, and I the one that made me I, the the lady that likes um oh Tony Taylor of Eight Minutes Away hates Boy George and heavy metal. And then I googled the address, and it's a, it's basically in a cloister, and it, and I just thought, yeah, there's a good reason why you probably don't like Boy George, then really, um, <laughs> sort of a it's sort of a cloistered, gated kind of um, sort of religious community. Um, and then there was another. I mean, that's a great. That's making gross assumptions, of course. Um, and then there was the 17 year old Scott. Scott's trendy living down south called Butch Wolven. <laughs> oh, yes, I like that one. <laughs> was after 12 to 16 boys or girls that had a Hillman imp. And I looked up Eight Woodview Rise in Strood. 
And as far as I can make out, it probably hasn't changed since 1983. <laughs> it just looks exactly what an early 1980s housing estate housing estate would look like. And I did wonder whether her trustee Hillman Imp was still there. Um, and the other one I liked was, well, the only other one was uh, Kate, 17, would swap words and thoughts with Bauhaus, Bowie, White and Torch, whatever that meant. Um Crozier House, where she lived, has been bulldozed. It doesn't exist anymore. So, yeah, they were the three that I pulled out. Slightly stalkery. I guess, Sai, you, you'd have written to Kate, 17, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bowie, Japan, Bauhaus, right up my street. E- even then, you know, they, they were up my street. But, yeah, that, that dislike of uh, heavy metal coming right through on the yeah. team. Yeah, big time. My name is Catherine, and my fave groups include Duran Duran, Kajagoogoo, Toya and U2. I dislike heavy metal. And she's in uh, South Wales. Uh, my name is Carl, and I would like to hear from girls and boys aged 16+. plus. I enjoy all kinds of music, except punk and heavy metal. <laughs> my interests include animals, photography and writing. <laughs> the one I would have written to, there's, there's one towards the end, uh, the penultimate advert is i'm a 15 year old strange german female that sounds intriguing doesn't it (laughs) and i'd like to hear from anyone anywhere who'll second my emotion i like black clothes japan simple minds mark and the mambas echo and the bunnyman and others please write to ulrika luz in west germany she sounds uh, quite mysterious and exotic you know all exotic and european (laughs) and that you know so yeah i like her (laughs) I also I thought these three lads here were very optimistic in what they wanted. Three loony guys wished to write to three equally mad girls with a good sense of humour. We enjoy Fun Boy 3, The Pale Fountain, Shalimar and Yazoo, Picks if possible, Banana Rama lookalikes welcome. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, mate. I don't think that's going to happen. But good luck with it. Yeah, I admire his ambition. Yeah, yeah. We could get three girls like Banana Rama and we could be like Fun Boy 3 and Banana Rama. I think that's what... In their head, they you know they were looking for, but yeah. that's what that's what they're aspiring to. There, Rich, did you ever write to anyone out of the pages of Smash It? No, I never. I never wrote to anybody in, in Smash It's in the letters page and wanted. I did have a pen pal, ironically, from Germany. <laughs> um, uh, I, I slightly digress, but I threw. I went on holiday with my parents in the mid seventies and threw a bottle over the side of a boat on a ferry. And uh, she was um, she was on holiday in Denmark, a German pen pal, and she picked it up on a beach. And my uh, and my family are still <laughs> friends with her. Yeah, we're still friends. Wow. We're still friends. It's sort of weird, weird thing. So yeah, um, so I had a German pen pal. Message in a bottle, yeah, yeah, absolutely, all of that. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, never, never wrote, never wrote. Smash it! Just prefer to throw, throw uh, litter over the side of the boat. <laughs> Do you remember what you said on the bit of paper? Did you say, "I'm rich. I hate heavy metal. Please write to me." At- <laughs> Likes Howard Jones. OMD. Likes Howard yeah. Jones. Yeah, something like that. It would have been name and address and age, probably, and a little bit more than that. Yeah. Please write. Ah, carefree days. <laughs> So we get a, a couple of more lyrics to close this issue of Smash It's um, Ice House, Hey Little Girl, there they are again, and uh, UB40, I've got mine, and on the back page, uh, free, uh, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven badges there. I'm, I'm assuming that you didn't get all seven badges with uh, the following issue of Smash It's maybe maybe just a selection of them, but there's uh, Culture Club, Madness, Spandau Ballet, Simple Minds, Wham, Tears for Fears, and U2. I mean, you were both buying 
playing Smash It's uh, at that time. Would you have worn any of these badges proudly? Well, the one that I got, I remember because I had it reserved at the news agent and I got the Madness one, which was okay. I did like Madness um, and I would rather have that than uh, Culture Club or Spandau Ballet for sure. I probably would have preferred, certainly a year or two later, I would have been very happy if I'd have got the Simple Minds or YouTube badge and then worn those. But um, I don't, yeah, I don't really remember wearing my Madness badge. No, I had, I had the Spandau Ballet badge, so uh, there we go. Um, and I kind of, I would, now I would wear it ironically, of course. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was the one I, that's the one I had. Oddly, looking at it, the... Um, there's no there's no sort of reference to the Spandau Ballet logo, but the Simple Mind ones and the Wham and the U2 and the Culture Club have kind of got a passing resemblance to the branding of the bands, haven't they? So mm. they probably just run out of ideas by the time they got to Spandau and Tears for Fears. Um, also, <laughs> also on the back, it's meant uh, rather brilliantly, um, and I've only noticed it now, is that March the 3rd is my birthday. So the next issue on March the 3rd, and uh, I would have been 16 on that birthday. So, yeah. Oh, wow. There we go. Happy 16th. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you got a Spandau Ballet badge for your birthday. That's lovely. Spandau Ballet badge. And if you could give me a rechargeable battery thing, uh, one of those battery chargers for my um, woman, yeah. that would have been good. That's what I got for my 16th, so... Yeah, there we are. I remember that, but bizarrely. <laughs> Good times. Uh, so thinking back to the days that you were buying Smashes, how long did you stay with the magazine for? So th- this was your first one. How long did you keep on, on buying and, and reading it for? I bought it probably for, for another three years, so sort of to 18. Um, but I was also buying um, the face by that point. I really got into the face magazine, and that was then my Bible when I, you know, I... Sixth form college, art college, film school, started work and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I did sort of three years of Smash Hits and then there was a bit of a bit of a crossover, a sort of a, a mix um, then with, with the Face magazine and, yeah, away I went. But I never, I, I kind of occasionally did NME and occasionally did Mel- Melody Maker. I did a bit of number one magazine on occasion and there was another magazine called Chart Music, I think, something like that. Um, but it was always smash hits. It was sort of solid smash hits for three, three or three years, three and a bit years. And now that we've finished having a look through this edition of the hits, I'd be interested to know uh, your thoughts. You know, looking back on it now, for, you know, almost like forty years on. I think, well, for me, it feels like a little bit of a calm before a storm because we, we talked about true and you know Frankie relaxes till a year away, and you've had that sort of first wave of. Coach Club becoming big, Duran Duran becoming big, Spandau are, you know, those bands are all there and doing their thing and very successful. So it just feels like a kind of embedded in, really, I guess, looking at looking back on it. But as I said, it's sort of really surprising the amount of songs that I didn't know in those singles and albums reviews. Just reading it again the last couple of days and I poured over this magazine as much as I did when I probably first bought it and just I thought I knew everything about that period of pop music and clearly I don't there was a whole load of stuff out there that I just completely missed and Gav what what about you yeah I think for you know what what Richard says about the calm before the storm before everything became more calculated when things were a bit more amateurish and things felt like things happened maybe a little bit more spontaneously and there was more of that kind of slightly carefree spirit, I think. And then, you know, once True gets big and 
you were talking about the Americanization of of pop and MTV and all that, and then it felt like maybe some of that creativity and that just exuberance and you know that kind of crazy creative time kind of gets lost a little bit, and it's more about what will sell and what's the market, and you know thinking about demographics and how's this going to sound on American radio on FM rather than medium wave or, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I quite like this period because it's an interesting, it's kind of post, it's post-punk and it's kind of new wave, but still I think creatively it's a very fertile period. And then I think not long after this, things started to get a little bit bland and a bit safe and a bit corporate. So, yeah, for me, this is a, this is a great kind of era, you know. Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's there's like almost like an innocence and naivety mm. to it that I think's probably still carried over from punk and new wave. Uh, and there's that attitude that kind of in- informs a lot of what the bands are doing, and that you know that they're all just figuring this out for themselves. And even the you know the big record companies haven't quite figured out how to play the game yet. And, it, and like say, a couple of years down the line they are working out how to play the game and that's when it kind of loses that edge Mm. a little bit. So there's still a great deal of excitement in pop music at at this time from the bands that we were seeing come through. Um, But for for me personally, um, I've just been taken right back to being that that nine-year-old moving house, starting a new school and everything just feeling new shiny shiny yeah and just <laughs> hit, hit, listen to the songs on the playlist and just looking at these photos and you know that that cover with, with with omd there's just yeah a real kind of freshness and newness to it that maybe it is because i associate it with that time or maybe that exists you know for, for other people as well i don't know but that's everything that, that i'm bringing to it and listening back to these songs i was just immediately back there nine years old and starting a new school and stuff Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's nice. It is. It's that kind of, uh, particularly because of the the climate we're in at the moment with lockdown and all the attendant strangeness. Going back to this kind of little period of history, it's like going back to your little, oh, little cosy, warm, safe, yeah, space in your head, you know. And uh, it's very comforting, isn't it? Yeah. It's been sat on our coffee table for a couple of weeks. Oh, look at me, posh down south <laughs> oh, the coffee table. You. Um, What's a coffee table? Been... <laughs> we don't have a beer. I am living the dream. Um, but no, it's literally been sat there with three or four other of the other issues, you know. And uh, you know, I've been sort of just mm. tucking into it and tuck, you know, it's been it's been a labour of love. This another UB40 reference. It's been a you know, it's been a real labour of love to go through this and sort of reminisce in a kind of quite a positive way, actually. It's given you some food for thought. Ah, very good. Richard, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and for going through this this issue of Smash. It's really, really appreciated. Yeah, it's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Glad, glad to hear that. And uh, thanks to you out there for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll also find the links to the edition... Where you'll also find the links... <laughs> You, you, you find were. a what? Find a what? What? <laughs> where you'll also find the links to the edition. No, I can't do that. Where you'll also find the. 
where you'll also find your will, goddammit, where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And you can, of course, check out the playlists and scans. This is a disaster. And you can, of course, check out the playlists and scans for our previous episodes while you're there. Don't forget, if you want to support us by... <laughs> Don't forget, if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, we'd be forever in your debt. <laughs> the rumblings of a madman. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. What are we doing? Oh, yes. If you want to support us by buying us a coffee, we'd be forever in your debt. Uh, coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash pod, And that's where you can go to do that. Uh, buy us a little coffee. And come and say hello to us at pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we'll say hello back. We really will. So thanks again once for... Uh, thanks again once for listening. <laughs> <laughs> One time. Two One time. time. <laughs> so thanks once again... For- <laughs> <laughs> it's been so, a few months, hasn't it? It has been a while. So thanks once again for once again. No, I can't say. It. <laughs> so thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye. 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 Hey, well done, Sai. <laughs> you got there. Oh, flipping out.